Section 23 of L'Assommoir This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Giessen L'Assommoir by Emile Zola Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli Fifth part of chapter 5 Nana reigned supreme over this host of urchins. She ordered about girls twice her own size, and only deigned to relinquish a little of her power in favour of Pauline and Victor, intimate confidant who enforced her commands. This precious chit was for ever wanting to play at being mamma, undressing the smallest ones to dress them again, insisting on examining the others all over messing them about and exercising the capricious despotism of a grown-up person with a vicious disposition. Under her leadership they got up tricks for which they should have been well spanked. The troop paddled in the coloured water from the dyers and emerged from it with legs stained blue or red as high as the knees. Then off it flew to the locksmiths where it purloined nails and filings and started off again to alight in the midst of the carpenter's shavings. Enormous heaps of shavings, which delighted it immensely, and in which it rolled head over heels, exposing their behinds. The courtyard was her kingdom. It echoed with the clatter of little shoes as they stampeded back and forth with piercing cries. On some days the courtyard was too small for them, and the troop would dash down into the cellar, race up a staircase, run along a corridor and then dash up another staircase and follow another corridor for hours. They never got tired of their yelling and clambering. "'Aren't they abominable, those little toads?' cried Madame Boche. "'Really, people can have but very little to do to have time to get so many brats. And yet they complain of having no bread.' Boche said that children pushed up out of poverty like mushrooms out of manure." All day long his wife was screaming at them and chasing them with her broom. Finally she had to lock the door of the cellar when she learned from Pauline that Nana was playing doctor down there in the dark, viciously finding pleasure in applying remedies to the others by beating them with sticks. Well, one afternoon there was a frightful scene. It was bound to have come sooner or later. Nana had thought of a very funny little game. She had stolen one of Madame Boche's wooden shoes from outside the concierge's room. She tied a string to it and began dragging it about like a cart. Victor, on his side, had the idea to fill it with potato parings. Then a procession was formed. Nana came first, dragging the wooden shoe. Pauline and Victor walked on her right and left. Then the entire crowd of urchins followed in order, the big ones first, the little ones next jostling one another. A baby in long skirts, about as tall as a boot, with an old tattered bonnet cocked on one side of its head, brought up the rear. And the procession chanted something sad with plenty of O's and R's. Nana had said that they were going to play at a funeral. The potato parings represented the body. When they had gone the round of the courtyard, they recommenced. They thought it immensely amusing. "'What can they be up to?' murmured Madame Boche, who emerged from her room to see, ever mistrustful and on the alert. And when she understood, 
But it's my shoe, cried she furiously. Ah, oh, the rogues! She distributed some smacks, clouted Nana on both cheeks, and administered a kick to Pauline, that great goose who allowed the others to steal her mother's shoe. It so happened that Gervaise was filling a bucket at the top. When she beheld Nana, her nose bleeding and choking with sobs, she almost sprang at the concierge's chignon. It was not right to hit a child as though it were an ox. One could have no heart. One must be the lowest of the low if one did so. Madame Boche naturally replied in a similar strain. When one had a beast of a girl like that, one should keep her locked up. At length, Boche himself appeared in the doorway to call his wife to come in, and not to enter into so many explanations with a filthy thing like her. There was a regular quarrel. As a matter of fact, things had not gone on very pleasantly between the Boches and the Coupeaus for a month past. Gervaise, who was of a very generous nature, was continually bestowing wine, broth, oranges, and slices of cake on the Boches. One night she had taken the remains of an endive and beetroot salad to the concierge's room, knowing that the latter would have done anything for such a treat. But on the morrow she became quite pale with rage on hearing Mademoiselle Romanjou relate how Madame Boche had thrown the salad away, in the presence of several persons, with an air of disgust, and under the pretext that she, thank goodness, was not yet reduced to feeding on things which others had messed about. From that time Gervaise took no more presents to the Boches, nothing. Now the Boches seemed to think that Gervaise was stealing something which was rightfully theirs. Gervaise saw that she had made a mistake. If she hadn't catered to them so much in the beginning, they wouldn't have gotten into the habit of expecting it and might have remained on good terms with her. Now the concierge began to spread slander about Gervaise. There was a great fuss with the landlord, Monsieur Marescot, at the October rental period, because Gervaise was a day late with the rent. Madame Boche accused her of eating up all her money in fancy dishes. Monsieur Marescot charged into the laundry, demanding to be paid at once. He didn't even bother to remove his hat. The money was ready and was paid to him immediately. The Boches had now made up with the Laurieux, who now came and did their guzzling in the concierge's lodge. They assured each other that they would never have fallen out if it hadn't been for clump-clump. She was enough to set mountains to fighting. Ah, the Boches knew her well now. They could understand how much the Lorieurs must suffer. And whenever she passed beneath the doorway, they all affected to sneer at her. One day, Gervaise went up to see the Lorieurs in spite of this. It was with respect to Mother Coupeau, who was then sixty-seven years old. Mother Coupeau's eyesight was almost completely gone. Her legs, too, were no longer what they used to be. She had been obliged to give up her last cleaning job, and now threatened to die of hunger if assistance were not forthcoming. Gervaise thought it shameful that a woman of her age, having three children, should be thus abandoned by heaven and earth. And as Coupeau refused to speak to the Lorieurs on the subject, saying that she, Gervaise, could very well go and do so, the latter went up in a fit of indignation, with which her heart was almost bursting. When she reached their door, she entered without knocking. Nothing had been changed since the night when the Lorieurs, at their first meeting, had received her so ungraciously. 
The same strip of faded woollen stuff separated the room from the workshop, a lodging like a gun-barrel, and which looked as though it had been built for an eel. Right at the back, Lorieux, leaning over his bench, was squeezing together one by one the links of a piece of chain, whilst Madame Lorieux, standing in front of the vice, was passing a gold wire through the draw-plate. In the broad daylight the little forge had a rosy reflection. "'Yes, it's I,' said Gervaise. "'I dare say you're surprised to see me as we're at daggers drawn. "'But I've come neither for you nor myself, you may be quite sure. "'It's for Mother Cooper that I've come. "'Yes, I've come to see if we're going to let her beg her bread from the charity of others.' "'Ah, oh, well, that's a fine way to burst in upon one,' murmured Madame Lorieux. "'One must have a rare cheek.' "'And she turned her back and resumed drawing her gold wire.' "'affecting to ignore her sister-in-law's presence. "'But Lorilleux raised his pale face and cried, "'What's that you say?' "'Then, as he had heard perfectly well, he continued, "'More backbitings, eh? "'She's nice, Mother Coupeau, to go and cry starvation everywhere. "'Yet only the day before yesterday she dined here. "'We do what we can. "'We haven't all got the gold of Peru. "'Only if she goes about gossiping with others "'she had better stay with them, for we don't like spies.' He took up the piece of chain and turned his back also, adding as though with regret, "'When everyone gives five francs a month, we'll give five francs.' Gervaise had calmed down and felt quite chilled by the wooden-looking faces of the Lorieurs. She had never once set foot in their rooms without experiencing a certain uneasiness. With her eyes fixed on the floor, staring at the holes of the wooden grating through which the waste gold fell, she now explained herself in a reasonable manner. Mother Coupeau had three children. If each gave five francs, it would only make fifteen francs, and really that was not enough. One could not live on it. They must at least triple the sum. But Lorieux cried out, Where did she think he could steal fifteen francs a month? It was quite amusing. People thought he was rich simply because he had gold in his place. He began then to criticise Mother Coupeau. She had to have her morning coffee. She took a sip of brandy now and then. She was as demanding as if she were rich. Mon Dieu! Sure, everyone liked the good things of life, but if you've never saved a sou, you had to do what other folks did and do without. Besides, Mother Cooper wasn't too old to work. She could see well enough when she was trying to pick a choice morsel from the platter. She was just an old spendthrift trying to get others to provide her with comforts. Even had he had the means, he would have considered it wrong to support anyone in idleness. Chavez remained conciliatory, and peaceably argued against all this bad reasoning. She tried to soften the Lorieurs, but the husband ended by no longer answering her. The wife was now at the forge, scouring a piece of chain in the little long-handled brass saucepan full of lye-water. She still affectedly turned her back, as though a hundred leagues away, and Gervaise continued speaking, watching them pretending to be absorbed in their labour in the midst of the black dust of the workshop, their bodies distorted, their clothes patched and greasy, both become stupidly hardened like old tools in the pursuit of their narrow mechanical task. Then suddenly anger again got the better of her, and she exclaimed, "'Very well, I'd rather it was so. Keep your money.' "'I'll give Mother Coupeau a home, do you hear? 
I picked up a cat the other evening, so I can at least do the same for your mother, and she shall be in want of nothing. She shall have her coffee and a drop of brandy. Good heavens, what a vile family! At these words, Madame Laurier turned round. She brandished the saucepan as though she was about to throw the lye-water in her sister-in-law's face. She stammered with rage. Be off, or I shall do you an injury. And don't count on the five francs, because I won't give a radish. No, not a radish. Ah, oh, well, yes, five francs. Mother would be your servant, and you would enjoy yourself with my five francs. If she goes to live with you, tell her this. She may croak. I won't even send her a glass of water. Now off you go. Clear out. What a monster of a woman, said Gervaise, violently slamming the door. On the morrow she brought Mother Coupeau to live with her, putting her bed in the inner room where Nana slept. The moving did not take long, for all the furniture Mother Coupeau had was her bed, an ancient walnut wardrobe which was put in the dirty clothes room, a table and two chairs. They sold the table and had the chairs re-caned. From the very first the old lady took over the sweeping. She washed the dishes and made herself useful, happy to have settled her problem. The Lauriers were furious enough to explode, especially since Madame Lerat was now back on good terms with the Coupeaus. One day the two sisters, the flower-maker and the chain-maker, came to blows about Gervaise, because Madame Lerat dared to express approval of the way she was taking care of their mother. When she noticed how this upset the other, she went on to remark that Gervaise had magnificent eyes, eyes warm enough to set paper on fire. The two of them commenced slapping each other, and swore they would never see each other again. Nowadays Madame Lerat often spent her evenings in the shop, laughing to herself at Clemence's spicy remarks. Three years passed by. There were frequent quarrels and reconciliations. Chavez did not care a straw for the Lauriers, the Boche, and all the others who were not of her way of thinking. If they did not like it, they could forget it. She earned what she wished. That was her principal concern. The people of the neighbourhood ended by greatly esteeming her, for one did not find many customers so kind as she was, paying punctually, never cavilling or higgling. She bought her bread of Madame Coudeloup in the Rue des Poissonniers, her meat of stout Charles, a butcher in the Rue Polonceau, her groceries at Le Hongre in the Rue de la Goutte d'Or, almost opposite her own shop. François, the wine merchant at the corner of the street, supplied her with wine in baskets of fifty bottles. Her neighbour, Vigourou, whose wife's hips must have been black and blue, the men pinched her so much, sold coke to her at the same price as the gas company. And in all truth, her tradespeople served her faithfully, knowing that there was everything to gain by treating her well. Besides, whenever she went out around the neighbourhood, she was greeted everywhere. She felt quite at home. Sometimes she put off doing a laundry job just to enjoy being outdoors among her good friends. On days when she was too rushed to do her own cooking, and had to go out to buy something already cooked, she would stop to gossip with her arms full of bowls. The neighbour she respected most was still the watchmaker. Often she would cross the street to greet him in his tiny cupboard of a shop, 
taking pleasure in the gaiety of the little cuckoo clocks with their pendulums ticking away the hours in chorus. End of chapter 5 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey